Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 345. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, me banging on about donations. <laughs> yes, you're not getting away from it. Then we have, looking back at genre history, our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Then we have a little segment in there by Ariel Siegel, who's... Wishing his dad happy birthday. His dad got him into science fiction and he, he dropped us an email. I just thought oh, that was a really cool, sweet idea. So Ariel's wishing his dad, Jonathan, a happy 70th. And, you know, I just explained about science fiction as well. Then we have part two of Trading Rosemary by Octavia Cade, which is the kind of follow-on, like you say, part two of the big story we ran last week. That is all coming in today's show. So first up, yes, let's bang his drum. Come and support the Starship Sofa. I will, we also have, you know, you've got the monthly donations, but we've also got Sofa Notes, where if you sign up, join up, £6 a month, you get loads of free content, different, not free content, different content, you know, like kind of exclusive content. And there's all sorts in there. I've just kind of been, over the kind of months it's been going, just putting different, all the kind of, the stuff Starship Sofa's done, all them kind of video lectures, all the books that we've got out there, all the kind of, you know, like the e-books, the Starship Sofa's 1, 2, and 3, Tales to Terrify, all that's in there anyways. There's a load of free stuff. But I was talking to Amy, our very old Amy, who's coming on later, and Amy's recorded, and that was this was like a lovely kind of touching moment. She said she wanted to, and we've had these audiobooks for a while Amy recorded some audiobooks for her niece who was born and just wanted to get used to Amy's voice because I think they live you know pulls apart on the on the same continent you know it's on uh, in America somewhere but you know certainly 
you know, it's not easy to just kind of pop over. And Amy wanted to kind of record these stories just so she had, you know, and she, to listen to the listen to our voice and everything like that, and you know, a little kind of memory from her and the Amy. And Amy's very kind. We'll let her have these. So I'm going to from this week on start putting. I think the first one up, and it's just I think there's about ten sections of these audio books. So you will be getting them, and I'll mention these as well. You know, a little bit later on in the kind of this promotion month of trying to help out Starship Sova. You know, so come over there, sign up for Sofa Notes, and you will get a fantastic bundle of products there now and ongoing as well with Amy narrating some audio books for her. So please think about it and support the show. So talk about Amy. First up then is our very own Aim with looking back at genre history. Aims. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. When last we spoke, I shared part of a current research project with you under the working title Seeking Dumbledore's Mother, Harry Potter in the Native American Context. And in that last segment, I talked about Holly Anderson's essay, Reading Harry Potter with Navajo Eyes, and in particular, her insights about the metaphor in reverse of the Harry Potter boarding school experience that she has found very useful in thinking about her family's and her people's experiences with Indian boarding schools. Today, I'd like to talk about some of the thoughts I've had when reading the Harry Potter series with Native America on my mind. So, I'd like to invite you to rethink the werewolves, giants, and goblins of the Harry Potter universe with me. In an Entertainment Weekly interview from the 7th of July, 2000, J.K. Rowling admits, and I quote, "...bigotry is probably the thing I detest most." All forms of intolerance, the whole idea of that which is different from me is necessarily evil, end quote. She explores the subject of prejudice and oppression in her books through a variety of metaphors, from some purebloods disdain for the poor or non-pureblood magical folk, or the Dursley's fear of anyone who doesn't fit their definition of normal, to the centaur's dislike of humans, or even the headless ghost's marginalization of the nearly headless ghosts. Rowling provides a variety of examples of how bigotry may become entrenched in relationships and even government policy with tragic consequences. I have found that the wizarding community's position toward werewolves, giants, and goblins, for instance, invites clear comparisons with historical and contemporary Native America. The plight of the werewolves in Rowling's series provides a case in point. Remus Lupin's tenuous legal standing as a werewolf. He's governed by a separate set of regulations from those that apply to his fellow marauders or members of the Order of the Phoenix, is not unlike the still unique and problematic legal position of Native peoples in the United States. Lupin's actions, at least the strictly legal ones, are dictated by the beast division of the Department for Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures, much as the options of Native Americans, despite repeated and numerous protests from Natives and non-Natives alike, are circumscribed by the Bureau of Indian Affairs of the U.S. Department of the Interior. 
Just as the policies of the werewolf registry are altered when leadership changes hands in the magical world, so too have policies toward Native America proved fickle and changeable. From the recognition of property under the Dawes Act in 1887 to the revocation of private property under the Indian Reorganization Act in 1934, from the step away from sovereignty with the termination policies of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, to the step toward sovereignty with the self-determination policy of the 1970s and 80s. Rowling consistently portrays Lupin as holding an uncertain and therefore subordinate status in the wizarding world due to his werewolf condition, one that's made possible because the mainstream in the wizarding world views him as different, as other. The result is he's vulnerable, and I think Lupin's vulnerability gives readers food for thought, especially when compared with contemporary real-world corollaries. Readers who are familiar with Native American history may also find familiarity with what Harry learns about the giants in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. As Hagrid explains, the giants once had been numerous. Quote, there were loads once, must have been a hundred different tribes from all over the world, end quote but now only a fraction of their number survives. That remainder has been removed to remote regions, out of sight, mostly out of mind, and abandoned to the violent intertribal feuds caused by their forced close proximity to each other. Albus Dumbledore, as Hagrid points out, blames the wizarding community for the plight of the dispossessed giants and their current state. Quote, it was the wizards who forced him to go and made him live a good long way from us, end quote. Details like these evoke the rapid depopulation of Native America after the Columbian encounter of 1492, the forced removal of Native nations through events like the Cherokee Trail of Tears and the Long Walk of the Navajo, and the resettlement of disparate and diverse tribes of American Indians in places not of their choosing, such as so-called Indian Territory, which later became my home state of Oklahoma. For that matter, in the Harry Potter series, readers watch both sides of the conflict in the magical world, the side of Voldemort and his Death Eaters, and the side of Albus Dumbledore, the Order of the Phoenix, and Dumbledore's army. Seek an alliance with the giants. They might be a marginalized people, alternately ignored and hated, but when war approaches, they take on new interest for both gathering forces. This brings to mind lots of historical parallels, how the English and French sought Native nations as possible partners during the French and Indian War, how the English and Americans did likewise during the War of 1812, and how the Union and Confederacy followed suit during the U.S. Civil War. Of all of the different magical creatures of Rowling's universe, I think the goblins offer a particularly interesting illustration of the parallels that can be drawn. Readers learn via Professor Ben's history classes at Hogwarts that a series of goblin rebellions took place in the past. According to Hermione's reading of Sites of Historical Sorcery, the one in 1612 was as close to the school as Hogsmeade, and the Three Broomsticks Inn was even used as the wizard's headquarters during the hostilities. These wars and riots, which are described as bloody and vicious, 
came about as the goblin population of the wizarding world revolted against discrimination and prejudice toward their kind. Now, according to the Wombat, that's the Wizard's Ordinary Magical and Basic Aptitude Test, there's a mouthful. Specific rebellions may have occurred because of lack of goblin representation on the Wizengamot, attempts to enslave goblins as house elves, stripping of wand privileges, wizard attempts to control Gringotts, the wizarding bank, which is run by goblins, or even brutal goblin slayings by Yardley Platt. While taking his owl examinations in history, Harry recalls that when the International Confederation of Wizards convened to unite the magical world across the planet, the goblins attempted to attend and represent their interests, and they were ousted. Centuries later, Harry discovers that the goblin grip hook remains bitter about wizards denying goblins the knowledge of and right to use wands, effectively making them second-class citizens in the wizarding world. Lack of representation, attempts at slavery, stripping of property rights, the wresting of control of time-honored institutions, and a power imbalance due to the technology of tools and weaponry, all of these ingredients evoke the so-called Indian Wars of the 19th century, in which various native nations asserted their rights to self-determination and fought a U.S. government, in which they had no say and no representation, that sought to subordinate them. For that matter, Griphook's anguish at seeing goblin-made treasures in the hands and often unrightful possession of wizards is reminiscent of the outcry that eventually led to the 1990 U.S. Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which requires both federal agencies and institutions that receive federal funding to return Native American cultural items to lineal descendants and culturally affiliated Indian tribes and Native Hawaiian organizations. Cultural items include human remains, funerary objects, sacred objects, and objects of so-called cultural patrimony. The notion of objects of cultural patrimony, I think, would resonate with Griphook, the goblin. After all, he recognizes the sword of Gryffindor by its older name. Quote, that sword was Ragnuk I's, taken from him by Godric Gryffindor. It is a lost treasure, a masterpiece of goblin work. It belongs with the goblins. End quote. So I would say that looking into the applicability of the metaphors of the werewolves, the giants, and the goblins in J.K. Rowling's work gives us greater insights into both Rowling's novels themselves, the sophistication and complexity of the Harry Potter universe, and an opportunity to look deeper into both contemporary and historical Native America. In my next and last segment on this topic, I will be diving into the issue of Kendra Dumbledore, Albus Dumbledore's mother, and asking the question why J.K. Rowling chose to identify her as Native American. I look forward to it. I'll see you soon for another look back into genre history. Thank you.
There you go, Amy, thank you so much. So next up, and if anybody else wants to do this, honestly, I just thought Ariel came to us and said, I've, you know, I mean, it's my dad's 70th birthday and I just want to do something a little bit special for him. Anyway, you, you kind of got us into science fiction. Do you mind if I say a few words on it? Well, actually, it was me that mentioned it to Ariel. I said, say them on, you know, because I think Ariel was going to write them out. And me <laughs> reading something, you know, I'm shocking. So I says, Ariel, you know, it'd be lovely, you know, if you kind of, you know, so he, he did it. And this is fantastic. So if anybody else wants to, you know, just to say a big thank you to, you know, someone who got them into science fiction and why they got them into science fiction. Hey, listen, I'm more than happy to play them. So Ariel... Hi, Tony. This is Ariel Siegel. I would like to pay the following tribute to my father on his 70th birthday, Dr. Jonathan Siegel. He introduced us kids to both classical music and Shakespeare from a young age, but I'd like to talk today about how he introduced us to science fiction. My first encounter with Dad and science fiction comes about age six. I was reading and listening to a TV program that talked about how the sun would dim out, turn into a red dwarf, and go out in about six billion years. I was scared, as six-year-olds might be. So he told me a story about what he made up to be Earth 2, whereupon an ingenious professor uh, was able to find a way of transporting the people of Earth to a more congenial world, at the time of the son's death. So he also made up stories about the wacky alien life that lived on Earth too, and the adventures people had there and was able to reassure me. Later, we were watching the original Carl Sagan Cosmos and he mentioned, Sagan mentioned World of War of the Worlds and Dad did an impromptu kind of quick recreation of the main points of War of the Worlds afterwards. Later on, he would read to us kids from science fiction anthologies, such as Judith Merrill's The Tenth Annual Year's Best SF. He particular, we particularly enjoyed The Carson Effect by Richard Wilson from 1965, whereupon a lot of people, millionaires, etc., seem to be unusually philanthropic, giving up their fortunes to other people. It turns out that the elite of society know that a poison gas cloud is going to envelop the earth, causing the extermination of the human race. But it turns out nothing happens because people have been exposed to enough pollutants, as per Rachel Carson, that they're immune. And all the different philanthropists and rich people want their stuff back. <laughs> so uh, it, 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 it was very funny and kind of poignant at the same time. So we appreciated that. The most striking story that he told me that I remember is Isaac Asimov's The Last Question. Asimov uh, basically posited a computer which was asked by scientists in the near future, can entropy reverse to prevent the heat death of the universe? And the computer says, still working, uh, calculating. And it follows subsequent generations, century, and millennia of humans asking the computer in space and other gal in the galaxy, etc., and it says still calculating. So when the heat death of the universe basically occurs and everything's extinct, the computer, which is in hyperspace, says uh, calculation complete, hyper uh, 
entropy can be reversed, let there be light, basically becoming a kind of deity. So that was something that really made an impression on me. And I remembered Dad's recounting of it well when I attended a lecture by Freeman Dyson, the great physicist at University of Maryland in 1997, where he addressed the question of can entropy be reversed. Dyson's answer, if we get to the level where we can manipulate black holes and export entropy outside of the universe. So, go figure. As uh, we grew up, Dad ensured that SF remained part of our lives. When we got a VHS VCR player and first went to a video store to rent tapes, Dad had us get 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the Richard Fleischer Disney film from the 50s with James Mason as a powerful Captain Nemo, the giant squid fight, etc. And he would tape a lot of classic films like, say, Fantastic Voyage or Forbidden Planet, so we had those to view. So anyway, I just want to express my gratitude to Dad for putting a, giving us the sense of wonder and possibility that SF gives, and wish him a very happy birthday, and to infinity and beyond, as Buzz Lightyear might say. Thanks, Tony, and as always, terrific podcast. Be well. Bye-bye. There you go. Happy birthday, Jonathan. 70-year-old. Hey, go on there, lad. That's just fantastic. Ariel, thank you so much. And Jonathan, have a great day, sir. So, next up is Trading Rosemary Part 2 by Octavia Cade. Like you say, we paid the first one, part of it, last month, last week. And we're now going into this week's. And I'll just for a heads up there, Octavia Cade is a PhD candidate in science communications at the University of Otango in New Zealand. Her short fiction has appeared in Strange Horizon, Cosmos Magazine and Aurelis, amongst other places. Trading Rosemary is a first novella published earlier this year by Mask Books. She can be found at, and I'll put a link on to Octavia's blog posts. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Trading Rosemary, Part 2 by Octavia Cade. In a world where experience is currency, Rosemary is the owner of a very special library. A library of memories, where scented coins transfer personal experience from one individual to another. When she trades away the sole memory of her grandmother's final concerto, family opposition in the form of her daughter Ruth, forces Rosemary to go on a quest to try to recover the lost coin. Yet, having to trade away her own memories to get it back, how much of Rosemary will survive the exchange? And now the conclusion of Trading Rosemary by Octavia Cade. Chapter 7. Takaka. Rosemary wasn't particularly fond of jam. She disliked the way the pips clung to her teeth like crows on carrion, and as she grew the sweet stickiness of it struck her as mawkish, artificial. It wasn't a family trait. Her grandmother's pantry had always had jam in it, and she had allowed the child Rosemary to spread it about without criticizing her table manners. The Rosemary had often felt secretly guilty at her mess-making, and had always tried to brush the crumbs neatly whenever her grandmother had looked away, smoothing the tablecloth covered in musical notes and covering up places where she had smeared jam into the pattern. Grandmother always ignored her own mess. 
Rosemary found a strange comfort in the memory of her toddler self, the golden amber of the jam and swept piles of crumbs, the perfect ring they made when her plate was taken away. The crumbs were more important than the jam. She had, after all, eaten that more to please another than herself. The morning after the season ended, and the last week of her school holidays, Rosemary scraped the congealed remnants of a jar of Fejwood jam onto her toast. It had the consistency of a rubber band, sticky and stringy, but at least she had managed to finish the pot this time. As a small child, she had made the mistake of being a little too polite about her grandmother's jam, and ever since, a new jar had been waiting for her every time she visited. The previous one had fallen prey to mold and rubbish bin in less than quick succession, for Rosemary's grandmother was a better musician than housekeeper, and as she aged, Rosemary grew better at finding excuses not to eat the stuff. It's full of sugar, Nana. Don't you know what it does to your teeth? I'm on a diet, there's a dance next week, and I've got a new dress I need to fit into. Look, I've made us scrambled eggs for breakfast. Could you please pass the salt? When her grandmother came down, she had upended the jar and shaken out the last few gobbets. Lately, as the reality of weeks without early morning practice started to sink in, the older woman had begun to feel wistful for Fagewood Jam. Rosemary expected this. It happened every year. The problem was that the more she ate it, the less impressed she was with it. I've bought the same jam from the same shop for years. And you know what, darling? I don't like it much at all. It's very distressing. I think nostalgia has blunted my taste buds. To think of all the years I've shoveled it down, it's criminal. You would never know that it had fruit in it. At least not the real live fruit I used to steal out of the garden when I was your age. She shot her granddaughter an arch look. Don't ever get old, Rose. Nothing's what it used to be. You become such a terrible cynic when you get old, and everything tastes wrong. This jam used to taste of summer when I was your age. Now it's just a little jellied graveyard. Rosemary rolled her eyes. It's just jam, Nana. Nothing's just anything, said her grandmother. There's no reason to settle for just. No, I've decided. We're at a fairly loose end now, and our time is our own. If we're going to have jam, it might as well be good jam. Oh, said Rosemary. Goody. But she said it under her breath, knowing that her grandmother was trying to share something with her beyond the music that Rosemary had no true feeling for. Desperation drove them to the local health food store, Rosemary reasoning that they were least likely to add anything to jam that a fussy old person might object to. The two of them skirted the door distrustfully, trying to slide in without being noticed, as if they were after pornographic coins rather than breakfast. The shop was filled with tubs of what smelled distressingly like rabbit pellets, but it also had jars of what looked like homemade jam. They were in little glass pots with handwritten labels and a checked blue and white hat, and some were phagewa. Rosemary held one up to the light, and the warm golden glow got her grandmother's happy approval. But she had to cringe in teenage embarrassment when the woman asked for some rashers of fatty bacon to go with it. We don't sell meat here, said the young man at the counter, his face alight with the enthusiasm of a zealot. Pigs have feelings too, you know. Not when they're dead, they don't, dear. And besides, they ought to be glad they've given such enjoyment after they're gone. She grinned at him, retreating into the little old lady of innocence that would have fooled no one at the conservatory. Wouldn't you be? The jam proved to be runny and sour. There was hardly any sweetness to it. 
unsurprising considering where it came from. Sugar made life a lot sweeter, so naturally it and the happiness it gave were out. Surprisingly, Rosemary had actually enjoyed it, dragging bread soldiers through the sticky surface and leaving them to crumble on her plate. She was deliberately untidy, as she had been as a child, knowing that her grandmother approved of her making a mess because she felt it was good for her. It reminds me a bit of marmalade, Rosemary had said, and her grandmother sighed. I like marmalade, she said defensively. You would. In my opinion, darling, you're too drawn to the bitter. I remember when you were a very little girl, and I tried to tempt you with raspberry jam, with blackberry preserves. But watching you try to pick pips off your toast with a needle before eating it was far too depressing. Red streaks everywhere. Not that I minded, but it was like you were trying to disembowel your breakfast. Most disconcerting. When she dragged Rosemary back to the shop to complain about the lack of sugar, the assistant had offered her some organic honey instead. They had politely refused and stood poking through the kelp extracts, cheerily snacking on bacon rolls. Rosemary's cheeks were red as apples throughout, but her grandmother thoroughly enjoyed herself. The rolls were a trifle squashed from being in her handbag, but she enjoyed making the point. They kept the jam. What else to do? Rosemary's only consolation was that it would never thicken enough to go rubbery. Even the cat wouldn't touch it, and considering the animal was a waddling garbage disposal unit, that was something. Her grandmother had always kept cats, always fed them tidbits from her table. It kept them from going after the birds, she said. And what was a little fur in her food now and then? Better than feathers, lonely and curled up at the edges or clumped in the corner connected by smears of hard-dried blood, and the cat sitting smugly with red-tinted claws. In the end, they resigned themselves to making their own, spending an entire day in the carriage roaming the orchards of Golden Bay, where dusty leaves of the fruit trees devoured the sunshine, leaving only patches to fall to the ground like crumbs. The faintly furry feijuas fit snugly into Rosemary's palm, their bright skin taut almost to bursting. She ate some immediately, tearing the skin open with her fingers and sucking the flesh from them, juice dripping down her chin and disinterring memories of her childhood. She had been three years old. Her parents had been viewing a house, one they would eventually buy. And at the bottom of the garden were three phasua trees, dusty sentinels in a line of cool green shadows, slouched in the warm sunlight. With her younger sister waddling beside her, Rosemary had pressed into the trunk of the first tree. The fruit hung down temptingly, squat and bulbous. Careful to keep the thick foliage between herself and her parents, she had squeezed and squelched at one fruit after another. Poached as they were in the afternoon air, the taste had struck her, acrid and furry. The taste of possums fighting on a corrugated iron roof at night. The taste was as vivid as sound. She could almost hear the scratching. Her sister stood blinking in the sun, rounded eyes watching, strangely greedless. Standing in the sun and watching Rosemary like a dazed owl in daylight, drawing attention to them both, to Rosemary's petty thievery. She wouldn't hide behind the trunk of the tree, wouldn't blend into the shade and lick the sweet fruit. It was beyond her to be unobtrusive. Rosemary had wanted to hit her. Since then, Feijua had been a touchstone, present if not acknowledged. A half-eaten pot of jam was always in the pantry. A reminder more than anything else. A possibility that didn't come in a case. 
Coins were all very well, but you couldn't eat them, and the smell alone was accurate enough to drive her wild and slavering, even if the taste almost always ended up being a disappointment. Rosemary didn't eat the jam often. It was usually reserved for the mornings when she needed to go shopping. But she found comfort in knowing that it was there, in the reminder of the summer holidays spent at her grandmother's. Her grandmother didn't buy feijos anymore, bought fruit trees instead and planted them in wet earth that clung to her fingers like pulp and pectin, planted them and waited. It was a long wait, but she was patient. It was what made her a good musician. Years passed before she tried to make jam again, years before the seedlings in her garden were mature enough to bear fruit. But while the trees grew strong, her grandmother's body was fading. Her gait became hitched and halting, It was harder for her hands to grip the instruments, and Rosemary had to help her on the stairs and with the music shelves in the library. When once it had taken ten paces to walk from her back door to the nearest tree, it now took twenty. It rained enough so that when she forgot to water them, the trees would survive until her knees remembered to make the trip, until the sun stopped the rain ache in her joints long enough to make the effort, or until her granddaughter visited to be chivied into the garden to do it for her. You should let me hire you a gardener, said Rosemary. But her grandmother refused. Those will be your fruit trees when I'm gone, she said. You can look after them. Better yet, hollow one out and bury me in it, or float it out to sea burning like they did with the Vikings. That hardly makes me want to cooperate, said Rosemary. Tough, said her grandmother. Besides, the fresh air will do you good. You're spending too much time in that library. It's turning you pale. The trees were overburdened with fruit when her grandmother died, and Rosemary carefully stripped them off the trees and gave them away, had cut down the trees and used their wood for funeral burning, for coffins and cremation. The funeral had had to be delayed while the wood dried, but Rosemary was firm. She had her instructions. Her grandmother had left her strings of scented wood along with those instructions, strings reminiscent of bubbling pots and pectin fingers, and Rosemary hung them over her kitchen window wove her fingers through them at night when she couldn't sleep, and breathed in the smell of warm fruit on toast. She kept some rough discs from the wooden offcuts, carved them into coins, and used them to hold the memories of music. The crumbs and the bright red needles and bacon she kept to herself for a while. Rosemary traded her memories to a sweet-toothed vintner with no space for anything but grapes. Afterwards, on a whim, she visited the nearest Fejwa orchard, It took her four hours to drive there and then back home. When she returned to her own kitchen, her clarity of purpose had faded almost as much as the phage was. They fitted into her palm, plump and unblemished. Their color was as it should be, but Rosemary could not escape the feeling the phage was had somehow paled, and that their bodies, once quick with golden glow, had faded in upon themselves. They seemed dusty, and try as she might, Rosemary could resurrect no life or memory from their taste. She didn't try to preserve them, but threw them away, and took down the strings cluttering her window. Some memories were better left undisturbed, and some were better off not being made. She felt more peaceful with them gone. The scent of the fruit lingered in the kitchen, a sweet green-yellow. Rosemary scrubbed out her cupboards with sugar soap, and when she had finished, her hands were wrinkled and clean, and she couldn't smell fruit in her house anymore. Chapter 8 Cargill The fifth coin had gone to a jewelry collector who lived in the far south of the archipelago. 
one who specialized in coins that were slightly warped and just round enough to give the illusion of beads. Rosemary paid for its return with a necklace of shimmery coins she made herself, aboard a private sailboat she had hired to quicken the journey to Dunedin. She spent several days wearing her own necklace, feeling the flashes of pleasure, of fragmented memory and flickering emotion, feeling the way they intertwined when brushing against her skin. It was a highly sensuous experience, lying on the deck, playing with her necklace and smiling at the crew, especially the cook, who cooked her Gernard he got fresh and told her stories of the places he had visited. Why not, she thought, when he came back early from shore leave. Rosemary had not wanted to leave the boat, had come back as soon as she was able, once the arrangements for the following day's trade had been completed. The necklace hung prettily around her neck, coins twisting against her skin, brief contacts flashing through her consciousness, the smell and feel of the coast. She helped him stow the supplies, unsurprised when one of his hands brushed against hers in the galley, and again on the deck. She had spread blankets there to sunbathe, and the wool caught against her bared skin. Why not? There were no responsibilities here, no child or library or household to consider, just the warmth of the wind on her bare skin, the gentle rocking of the boat, the smell of the sea around her, and the shadows of gulls passing over the boat. Always strong-stomached, she enjoyed the sunlit rocking, tempered as it was in the harbor. The heat of the sun left her dizzy, closing her eyes against the brightness. Above her he smelled of cockles and fresh thyme, the faint astringency of lemon. Her breath seemed magnified in her ears, the slap of water loud against the side of the boat. She moved with him and the boat, and the memories jostled against naked skin, changing positions as she rocked, bright flashes before closed eyes. Jam jar gleams green in the sun, a plastic roof tied taut, tight with rubber. Many hands passing it along, octopus-like. But unlike the octopus, no one opens the jar. Although why they don't is beyond her. Probably no one would let them do it, for fear it would upset the parents. But then, passing a poisonous spider around in a jam jar was okay, especially when the one who was poisoned was doing the passing. Got bit several times, he said. Felt like being pinched with pliers, he said. She peered closely through the jar at the multifaceted eyes within. But the catapo is small, inoffensive, and when it waves its legs, it is impossible to see where its mouth is, when it would bite. They live in the driftwood, he said, the salt-dry scent of driftwood. The afternoon sun fell golden around, golden outside and greenly within the jar. If you're going to sit on driftwood at the beach, be careful, he said. These would sting more than the hot sand, be more cutting than the spiny dune plants on the tender feet of a new summer. There's driftwood on the beach at Brighton, but it doesn't glow or show what lives within. It's bleached bone white, with tints like it has leached the color of sand. There is no red stripe down its back, and there is not even the warning of a plastic cover, or the hovering poisoned man grown to love his poisoner, showing her off to gaping children. This is where she bit me, he said. The intertidal zone breathed around her, a damp and lisping littoral lung. When the sea inhales, the coast is exposed, and the beach is ripe for shaping into crumbling buildings and sand-shedding beasts. Rosemary builds alligators with shells for teeth and women with algae for hair. Then the deep watery exhale, the muddy scent of wet sand, and the sculptures are eroded, their temporary solidity denied. A steep shoreline, it's a precarious perch for building, 
but one that is tolerated because of the view. The shining plain of the Pacific, which defines the horizon and reflects around it, is a match for the sky. It is blue when the sky is blue, but more often, when the clouds have come over the coast, it darkens into choppy roughness, into restless waves that can be seen from far above. The view of seabirds with salty feet. It remains their view first, as over the decades the water level rises, waiting for the dunes, hungry for them, a menacing patience that bites into the beach. There are museums on the coast that show a different shoreline, and her mother tells of beaches that have shifted inland and higher as the water rises. The ocean's breath deepens, and there is less room for the children's castles, the strange and wonderful beasts, the mermaids that guard them, the architectural cockle-studded bestiary of the tidal zone, the sand castles that Rosemary builds and gleefully knocks down again. The sandy bodies drown in the tide and remain as ghosts, disembodied on the seafloor, when one day their small sculptors will evacuate, full-grown, to higher ground, leaving their childhood behind. She always looks for it last. It's so hard to find. Looks with specimen bags and neatly written labels, with alcohol to leach out the amino acids and a guidebook to aid identification. One thousandth the size of kelp, and not as bright as the green sea lettuce, for all that they're part of the same class, both chlorophyta, a strange kinship on a far-from-Latin coast. It's feathery, is plumosa, but only when it sways in the water and the barbs curl in the current. Otherwise not. Green feathers like a fern with all the starch taken out, hiding in shallow crevices where the sun doesn't reach. A green and secret smell, salt-rotten and tinged with traces of methanol. Feathery like the rock wren, tiny and shy, that flirts with the wind and then stays close to shelter, bright eyes gleaming out from the shadow. Bryopsis has no eyes, but it flutters like the wren, and its feathers plume from the rock, brightly, nightly, like a coat of arms, like a flag or the decoration of an unseen helmet. Perhaps it dreams of dragons, but when she attacks from above, the brave feather dies, lies limply over one finger, a soggy mass with all the barbicels laid low and the green darkened to death. This is what the rock wren leaves behind in summer storms, what remains of the helmet when it leaves the safety of the crevice and returns headless, shorn. It is what the fern loses when it stays in shadow. It lies on the beach, washed up, the limbs heavy and spread. It is stripped of bark, and only a few tatters remain. But underneath, the smooth white wood is hooked with spines. They are irregular enough to surprise fingers, and it is hard not to touch, to feel the catch on smooth skin. Rosemary is not the only one who does. People are drawn to it, the carcass on the beach, and a girl with dark hair leaves her rock pools and her hunt for the glistening powa to stroke the bare branches. Its limbs are as naked as hers, damp wood mixed with sweat and perfume and the hard brine of rock pools. Standing on the rocks from the perspective of height, the branches reach like fingers, like tentacles. From an angle, it is hard to tell if they are branches or roots, but the confusion doesn't matter as they no longer strain toward sky or earth, but lie outflung to the surrounding stone. They are as long as the trunk or longer and stretch like a giant squid in rigor mortis, its tentacles straining for water as the roots once reached for moisture in the soil, or the leaved branches stretching under the wet sky. There is no water here among the tide pools, just the thin crust of evaporated salt 
and the drowning on dry land. There is a fur seal on the rocks. It looks as if it might be dead. It smells as if it is dead, a sweet rot, rancid fat spoiling on stone. It's hard to see, the rough coat against the rock bank, the hairs the same shade as stones, like one of those three-dimensional paintings that must be stared at cross-eyed before the image can be seen. It's easy to lose by looking away. But who isn't fascinated by death? No one looks away. No one isn't fascinated, doesn't want to poke it, to knead it between still-living fingers, feel the newly rotting flesh to see if death is catching. Poor seal. It looks asleep. But what a lonely place to die, in front of a wildlife viewing platform, where, for once, no one was around to look or to call for help. Better luck next time. It must have been recent. There's no smell. Someone clambers down to it, but it isn't Rosemary. She is not yet completely sure the seal is dead, and the nearly dead bite, their stinking jaws jealous and ready for company. So someone else goes, on the grounds of better him than her, but he doesn't dare touch it. Above, her fingers clench on the railing, wanting to know the feel of the wet, jagged fur. Beside her, there is a call. Can you get me a whisker? A memento mori? Perhaps she collects an album of animal parts, an extended family shot. Or perhaps it is something to cook with, to flavor eye of newt. There aren't a lot of newts around here, but it is hard to see how whiskers substitute or blend together in the pan as the rocks blend with the fur. What would she cook with it, Rosemary wonders? It seems like grave robbery. But worse, for this is not for gold, but for gustatory self. Still, to know the feel of the whisker the crisp roughness like no crisp roughness she has felt before, to not be jealous of her possibilities, that she will take something that Rosemary doesn't get to take. The caller doesn't get her whisker, but now Rosemary wants one. Alas, the viewing platform is filled up, and mutilating the dead is not for an audience. Laying down quadrants and cockle beds, digging down with small shovels and counting, sorting and sizing and measuring, mapping the relationship between tide and depth and length, slapping up and down the beds in gumboots and sunburn, decanting the cockles out of the weighing buckets and back into their stretch of sand, making sure that they would not spend the afternoon in the bucket beneath the hot sun. At the end of the afternoon, another dig, but this time for cockles to take home, a full bucket with fresh seawater and the winding drive along the peninsula to another digger's flat rinsing the cockles under cold water and then throwing them in a saucepan to boil, one that had to be borrowed off the neighbors to fit all the shells, steaming them with garlic and butter, tossing in overcooked spaghetti, to be eaten with cheap wine off shared plates. Sand in her shoes and her shirt and her teeth, the cockles not fully cleaned, but no one had cooked them before. It was all a guessing game, and even with the crunch they tasted of the tide. The sex was pleasant, but unremarkable, and Rosemary did not transfer the memory of it immediately, preferring to laze in the sun and play with the shells about her neck. She had no immediate need of currency, and the experience was common enough. When, at dinner, she saw the polite and friendly eyes of the cook ladling pasta with shellfish and white wine onto her plate, she saw in his face that he had not waited as she had. The slight reserve, the tinge of curiosity gave it away. He remembered, of course, how they had spent the afternoon, but the details were removed from him 
locked into whatever coin he had chosen. Rosemary wondered what it was. Driftwood? Muscle shell? A polished disc cut from the glass of a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc? And smiled to herself through dinner. She felt as if she had a secret. Smiled more to know that he would soon take up that coin and revisit the memory. Curiosity was always a giveaway. She had done it often enough herself. Of course, it would be passed on soon enough, but Rosemary was no prude. Sex was a commodity, and she had benefited enough from others. Had she thought ahead, she could have brought one or two favorite coins with her for afternoons such as this had been, but perhaps it was best that she hadn't. Narrowness of experience was to be discouraged. Later that night, soft noises in the cabin next to hers suggested that the cook was reliving the memory of their lovemaking. At the same time, Rosemary was divesting herself of it. There was no need to put it off. The sun had gone down, the decks were stripped of warmth, and the day was over. Chapter 9 Chatham When Rosemary took her bird memories and handed them over for the sixth coin, handed them over to a lumpen, earthbound merchant too sick for traveling and boats, she lost her liking for more than feathers. Warm shuffles like mice in the cupboard, the soft sounds of an unbalanced body. She knew she should leave it, let the darkness soothe feathers and fear until she could take it in her hand calmly, stroke the soft walnut head, strangely solid under the spare down covering, rescued from the jaws of her horrible, overfed cat, and the nest too high to return to, too far out on the sea cliff, and Rosemary with no way of getting it back. So it was in the hot cupboard, wrapped in a tea towel in an old ice cream container. And Rosemary, sadistic with childish curiosity, a pendulum between her books and the cupboard, unable to leave it for ten minutes at a time, knowing her jack-in-the-box appearance was frightening it, but unable to stay away. Was it thirsty? Was it starving? Would it eat cat food and thrive, like a previous refugee had done, oblivious to the irony, if not the cat, which shared its food and watched with gleaming eyes, ready for canapé, for volivant, for stuffed plump gull dumpling? Would it eat? Would it refuse? Would it die? Could she keep it alive for herself, to sit on her shoulders and pick fish bones from her hand? It would be wrong to let it go hungry, this gaping, greedy baby fallen from the nest. Soft in her hands, the ridge of spine tender against her palm, head tilted backwards as she tried to prise open the tiny bill, hovering tweezers clogged with food, food smeared against the smile lines of the beak. The bird was rigid in her hands, staring, too scared to turn its head away, but Rosemary did not return it to the warm safety of the cupboard. Was it thirsty? Was it starving? Eat this, little birdie. It's good for you. Yum, yum. The pleasure and relief when she was able to force lumps down its throat. You'll feel better with something in your stomach, birdie. The horror at its choking, the harsh breaths, the panic in the small feathered face, in the small black eyes. Open up. Down go the silver tweezers. Quick, pull it out. Before it dies in her hands, terrified, stuffed from one end to another and wondering what it had done to deserve this death. Too petrified to move as food was stuffed down its throat. Too petrified to turn its head away, to live. The shame of it stiff in her hands, suffocated by fear and love and sardines. Why did it not swallow, stupid thing? Why did it not turn its head? Why could she not have left it safe in the cupboard to recover in its own time? Rosemary wept guilty tears, threw it in the marum grass where no one would see the corpse, 
threw it where even the cat couldn't find it, the bloody, beastly cat who she loved better than birds. The cat who plop-sucked his way across the damp sand, shaking miserable feet, shaking wind-shuffled fur and glaring. Seabirds, land birds, short, flat-beaked birds, long, red-footed, sharp-beaked birds. He would bring them home for rosemary to cure or kill, to drown in warm water, to stuff to death. Birds that soared on still warm air, island birds casting shadows on the water. He had no sportsmanship, would climb trees at night, slinking sleeping birds from the nest, scattering feathers across Rosemary's carpet. Feathers and a tiny remnant claw, a reminder that he could have left the entire corpse had he wanted to. Rosemary did not want him to. It was all right with small birds, common birds, who would miss a sparrow. But the protected penguin, clumsy and clambering onto the beach at dusk, would get them both in trouble. A fine for Rosemary, and a sight two foot under for Naughty Puss. The Department of Conservation didn't joke about bird catching. It was unaccountable. They cared more for the live creature than the memory of it. The warm salt smell half smothered with feathers. The grave uncoin. No vision whatsoever. Bound in the wheels of bureaucracy. Rosemary took the penguin with pangs of guilt, half suspecting the cat was laughing at her, knowing that she would protect him and mocking her for it. He had dragged it home whole, telltale marks left in the sand. Rosemary went out and scuffed them, disguising the evidence, wrapped the bird in a pillowcase in panic, and shoved it into the freezer. Just what the hell am I supposed to do with it now? She snapped at the cat, his eyes winking up at her, reflecting the kitchen lights. The trouble with neighbors, word would get around that Rosemary had a wild cat about the place and starved, it would go after native birds. Of course, it wasn't starved, just good at looking feral, good at behaving monstrously to poor defenseless creatures, although the penguin had left a sharp slice across the nose as a parting gift. Rosemary felt no sympathy as she held the cat down and doused it with iodine. He scratched her, sharp and indignant. The iodine stung her as well as him. Bugger off, then, you little bastard, Rosemary said, and there was real feeling behind it. The penguin stayed in the freezer for a long time, and every time Rosemary caught sight of its blue feathers through the freezer bag, the staring milky eyes, she had been irritated. She began to wish she had buried it as soon as she had found it splayed across her floor. Surely it was only paranoia that made her want to hide it as quickly as possible, but that same paranoia kept it safely buried under tuna steaks and lamb chops. The penguin ghost hung over her, wheedling and threatening in turn, gazing mournfully at the ocean. Eventually, she tired of its mute accusations and fed it to the cat. He didn't like it, but Rosemary refused to give him anything else until the penguin was gone. It took an entire fortnight, and the birds in her garden suffered for his disgust. They were smaller than he was, weaker. And the cat had so little sense of shame that Rosemary would see him mooning at her through the glass of the living room door, a delicate wax eye green in his mouth. He dropped them unmarked on her carpet, although some mornings brought only feathers. How Rosemary wished he would pick on something that would fight back. And not as ineffectually as the penguin, but something that would put him off his downy dinners for good, freeing his mistress from the obligation of cleaning up after him. 
Yet the only bird she could think of that he wouldn't challenge were the albatrosses that sometimes flew over the coast and circled the fishing boats. On sunny days, when she needed to feel her own freedom from the cloistered walls of the library, Rosemary would barter to spend the day on one of those boats. As a child, it had been her favorite treat, and she saw no reason to deny herself as an adult. When quicksilverfish were netted and brought to deck, shiny-scaled and scattered over the salt-sweet wood, Rosemary would watch from her perch at the bow, resplendent in a yellow parka. She loved to see the albatrosses drop to the boat, their still wings a dark scythe against the sky. Protected, they swooped for the fish, were permitted their tithe. Giant beaks sliced through flesh, tore and gulped in ruthless greed. Dark eyes watched Rosemary, fearless and fascinated she kept well away from those razor beaks, the heavy wings each as long as her arm. It was their freedom that appealed to her, that and the disdain with which they floated in currents that slapped Rosemary's face, chafed it raw, and rocked the boat from side to side. Air cracked in the sails, waves smacked at the hull. She would have liked to take them home with her, to circle her house in stormy weather, and remind her of the wildness of the world, the world that wings could take her to, the freedom those wings would give her. Coined albatrosses were nearly unheard of, Bad luck to kill an albatross, it was worse to capture them, although there were several known copies on the black market, and Rosemary had purchased one of them. She found, but she would never have admitted it, that the false freedom of albatross flight in her library couldn't match the reactions of her own escape to the fishing boats, her own identification with the bird. This gave her disquiet, and so she dreamed of an albatross that flew home to her, a garden of better birds, of further flight— and buried her purchase in the stacks, buried her flight in cages, and small birds that could be tamed and contained. Rosemary had birds as a child, peach-faced lovebirds that cooed and died in elegant lime feathers, too delicate for her chubby hands. They fed on fright, and more often than not expired of it. Rosemary buried them in the garden where she had once lost another bird, one that had escaped from its cage when she was cleaning it, one that had flown around the room, bumping into clear glass until it found a window that was open and flown away into the cool green garden and the brightness of sky. She went to the neighbors, asked if they had seen it pale green against the deep, clear silhouettes of ferns. She left food on the veranda dutifully, having no real expectation of the lovebird returning, with its silly face blushed with adventure. She heard her parents talking. It's obviously not from around here. The other birds will gang up on it. It's probably dead already. Well, they were clannish, Rosemary supposed. She could understand it, and felt surprisingly little sympathy for the wanderer. What a nuisance bird to cause all that trouble, to go where Rosemary could not follow. Hadn't she fed and watered it, done her best to ignore what a disappointment it was as a pet? Freakish, flighty, unfriendly in the extreme. The bird didn't return, and Rosemary did not grieve for it jealous for the freedom she could not attain and could not mimic. She searched briefly for a well-pecked corpse, fallen stiffly into the long grass of the hedged garden, but she never found anything. She looked at the remaining bird with dislike, and her parents misunderstood. We'll get you another bird, darling. She had better luck with budgies, lazy mincing birds prone to fits of screeching temper but they spent the rest of the day nibbling on cuttlefish and ignoring Rosemary's attempts to be friends. She liked them, even when unprovoked, they showed all the character of feather bolsters. 
Even the cat, an earlier model but with the same greedy stare, didn't bother them greatly. A lovebird would have keeled over in terror. Perhaps budgies had less imagination, Rosemary thought. They spent their days squatting and bobbing, producing infertile eggs. Only one hatched. Blue-gray, reminiscent of grave clothes and sacraments. It was weak and had no strength to fly, sat shivering on its perch, small squeaks rocking its body like earthquakes. With its downy baby feathers fluffed up, it was almost the size of its parents, and they fussed over it, preening, feeding, clucking. It made no difference. The lovebirds were back, a cuckoo in the nest. The blue budgie sat ghostly in the cage of its predecessors, a well-scrubbed cage that still had echoes of lovebird, for the budgie trembled, possessed with terror. Rosemary hung over it, hoping to claim one success, but for all her hovering, the baby died. She wondered if it was from fright, if her presence had stifled the bird, suffocated it. Perhaps she was a plague on the feathered population of the world. And yet, albatross flew about her. From that time on, Rosemary kept cats. They could be trusted not to keel over when her back was turned. Their independence was a comfort. When Rosemary took her bird memories and handed them over, she lost her liking for cats. Chapter 10. Tararua's it was a hard walk in the scaly, ridge-backed mountains, but Rosemary had paid porters with bright handfuls of summer holidays, and the flat presses where oil and wine spilled like blood through her fingers dripped onto her tongue, staining brilliant teeth. It was worth it to walk freely and unburdened to the remote hut of her next fender. The wind across the tussock tops spread her hair like streamers, lifted her arms as if they were wings. She let it toss her along the mountains, careered down slopes with arms winged open, and felt she was flying. The wind was so strong that her feet barely touched the ground, and Rosemary pictured herself alone in the hills, weightless and soaring. The sun shone on the tussocks and on the tiny waxy leaves of the trees below the bush line. They glinted in her eyes and made her dizzy, the warm, slippery smell of growth and earth coating her face and fingers as they spread in the wind. It was the smell of freedom and luck with porters far behind and the land opening out beneath her, green-scaled and golden at the tips where the tussocks came in. The moment Rosemary realized what luck was, and that she had it, was stamped on her memory with dragon wings and old crayon. A primary class, with sun shining in despite the shallow veranda with its glowing red windows like spilled paint, where at the end of the year children sat in a circle, dissecting the classroom and taking it home with them pieces of chalk and broken crayons, and pictures that held the walls up. There were some things everyone wanted, class projects that hung all year and waited overhead for lots to be drawn. The dragon was one. It ran the length of the classroom, an enormous shadow of bright green, with children riding between the bright scales. Rosemary had drawn herself, reluctant, and pasted it on in turn although she was sorry for it and whispered apologies in the dragon's ear when no one was looking. Her portrait didn't pull. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Long there. It didn't look like her. And she disliked how inferior it was. How inferior they all were compared to the sleek perfection of the dragon itself. The mountain outline of its scales. Too high to reach, she imagined them cool between her fingers. Leaving the house, it was the open-mouthed, back-toothed chewing of the cat, and the suspicious glare it sent in her direction, a sneaky prelude to sidling, that caught Rosemary's attention. Usually the cat only looked like that when it was eating something it shouldn't, just long enough to catch her attention before running off with the sticky remnants of its dinner. Rosemary didn't want to look, but she felt she had to. It never did to look away from unpleasant things. They didn't go away and the only person you cheated was yourself. Sitting between her splayed-out heels and wanting the drawing, really wanting it, and having her name drawn out of the hat, Rosemary was surprised by luck for the first and only time. Afterwards, she wasn't surprised at all. She had wanted the dragon more than anyone else, so of course it had flown to her. Rosemary believed she was lucky. Luckier than the classmates who saw their tiny selves folded and rolled and taken away on the dragon they had also wanted, but not enough. You are lucky, they said to her, in sulky, envious tones. And Rosemary had smiled because it was true. The dragon was proof. She was lucky, now and forever. And the sweet, dry smell of the rolled-up wax, it smudged off on her fingers if she wasn't careful, streaking them green like old bronze was the smell of the rightness of the world, where everyone got what they wanted best. It hung over her in the dark, wax slick under her fingers, and Rosemary's back itched with the feel of little legs, of round faces with orange smiles with twigs for hair. They looked down at her from their place atop the dragon, and she resented their presence, resented their polluting the clean ridgeline of the dragon's back. 
She would like to have cut them off, but their legs were part of the dragon, and even if she had snipped off their owners, her classmates, from the picture on her wall, the legs would have remained. The cat stayed put, which suggested what it caught wasn't tasty enough to bother preserving. Pressed against the foot of the house was a skink, made short and squat by the loss of its tail. Rosemary liked skinks, liked most reptiles but snakes. Reptiles reminded her of dragons and freedom and luck. But snakes on their ribbed, socked feet were too earthbound to be endearing. She could not picture wings on them, like she could with the skink, frozen on tiny, needled feet. She picked it up, a smell of wax, the warm, slick, crumbling scent of sunshine on its skin, and saw it bite her. Rosemary didn't really feel the bite, but with the shock of it she dropped the skink back to the ground, where it lay still. Again she picked it up, and again it bit. Despite herself, Rosemary dropped it again, flat on its back, and with a quick thud like a falling crayon. Her fingers were waxy, a residual sheen. Blood bloomed on her finger, and the cat slunk away disinterested. It didn't seem eager to eat any more of the skink, but Rosemary had lost sympathy and would have let it anyway. Looking back, Rosemary realized she could have colored over the lines, but at the time she didn't think of it. Her child self would not have wanted to try, frustrated by her inability to stay within the lines, clumsy hands that were short and fat like badger's mitts, as yet incapable of fine motor control. Control. Rosemary could not control her hands and did not want to control the dragon. It was the color it was, a scratched and mottled green, and it was not Rosemary's place to darken its skin, to skin the scales from its eyes and make it red-ravaged and hungry, to snatch the riders from its back and gorge them down its lumps, to be free of its harness, and still pinned to her wall. At night, Rosemary lay with the dragon above her and knew it to be real. This did not frighten her. She supposed it would have to eat, but it wouldn't eat her. Why would it? They were the same. Yet she could never understand why it wouldn't eat the crude outlines weighing it down toward the earth, with round orange smiles and hair like twigs and hands like claws spearing into its spine. Rosemary would have eaten them and felt relief at the eating. The memory still scratched at her. She would have liked to keep the dragon, keep the moment of luck and the conviction it brought her, and yet to forget the ghosts of the children who came with it. They had kept the reality from perfection. There was no reason why they should remain in the memory as well. In her memory, Rosemary unchained them from the dragon, left the scale crests of its spine clean and mountainous along the ridges of her memory, let them fall from its back and spiral grinning into oblivion. Halfway down the drive, and already late, she dropped her bag and turned back, half in disgust, half pity. The skink was scaled, and in the sunshine its skin was edged and distinct. Rosemary admired the clean outlines, admired that it would bite her, try to hurt her to live, to snap and cling and draw blood from something so gargantuan, something that outclassed it so completely. It wanted to live, and she wanted it to live. For the third time she lifted it, and the skink bit her again. Had she not seen the jaws clamp, Rosemary would not have known she was bitten. Perhaps her dragon did not know he was ridden, so small the people clinging, remora-like to his back. She let it cling, its warm body malleable against the heat of her fingers, the scent of its skin musty and sweet against hers. In the garden, in a safe place, 
She had to peel it off her finger, slice it off her body as she had sliced her classmates from the dragon. It left blood behind, a sweet tiny smear, and wouldn't dart into the crayon green shade. Froze with its mouth open, dared her to pick it up again. She felt nothing but relief in doing so, the relief of removing an unsightly stain from the picture in her mind, of the world as it should be, as it should have been. Someone else could find them and pick them up, some simple-minded, simpering person who would recognize something of themselves in a skinned and spinning set of paper dolls, thin-legged, one-legged, and holding hands, recognize themselves and find value in the nostalgia. Rosemary had never played with paper dolls. She found them obnoxious as child and adult, a sickly pastel shadow that couldn't touch the grim, sharp lines of scales that marched across her memory and stood like doors and windows. Rosemary couldn't remember the face of the dragon, or the claws, or the tail, though she could just about remember the last because of the spiral of scales, the subtle curves reflecting vertebrae. It was the scales that mattered to her the scales, and the luck. Once the annoying dolls were gone, she was free to see the dragon in its entirety, and free to slice it down into pieces that mattered most, to vivisect its waxy coat and wrench legs like bird bones from an undemanding carcass. These she discarded, having skinned them with her teeth and tasting greasy, the unmemorable flesh. Neutral flesh, like chicken. These she scattered in sunlight and forgot. Dragons left chunks of gristle and cracked bone after eating, and Rosemary abandoned her own fragments. They were not worth remembering, and she left them for scavengers. She got what she wanted best. Lucky Skink. Lucky Rosemary. The coin was iron and weighed down the front of her dress where the pockets were, peeked the fabric out ahead of her. It felt heavier than Rosemary knew it to be, dragging her earthward. She carried it herself, along with the rest of her purchases. She didn't want to trust them to the porters, no matter how well paid. The ground was so jagged and treacherous, the air so confining and musty, that she didn't want to chance an accident. At least if she fell, the coins would remain with her and not tumble down the slopes attached to someone else. With her luck, they'd never find them again. Early morning frost had made the ground slippery, and the rhythmic thump of coins against her breastbone was a counterpoint to her unsteady feet. The wind was heavy over the hills, and the footing uneven. It made Rosemary nervous, and she crept close to the hillside, clutching at tussock strands as she went. Wind whipped the strands against her so she could barely see the path. The tussocks left wet stripes on her hand, and a smell that she wanted to wipe off her fingers, but her clothes were permeated with it, a warm, slick, impermeable layer that left her feeling trapped and sticky. Rosemary kept her upper arms clenched to her sides, reached with her lower, and stepped closer to the ground crabwise. She did not trust the wind, and the heights of the hills made her dizzy. She was glad to have people with her. Chapter 11. Kaikara A thick piece of kelp, dried black and smelling of the sea. It was rigid in Rosemary's fingers, and she remembered the slick, spongy surface of the coin when she had cut it from the kelp how the sharp knife had flashed white in the sunlight, and how the house had smelled of brine for days after she had dried it in the oven. Dried a series of such coins. She kept a selection of blanks in reserve, and coins redolent of the ocean were common in the archipelago. 
Some she had used, mostly in small change, but she had experimented with others, soaked them before drying in different solutions, altered the final smell of the coin into ocean overlaid with lupin or lilac or prahutakawa. This kelp disc had been infused with rosemary oil, a pun that had amused her when she had made it. She'd not been much older than a child, and subtlety was then beyond her. She would not make such a coin now. To do so would appear gauche, a form of bragging and of claim, a selfish fragrance that would cling to the coin through its trading. Not that this coin would be often bartered. Kelp had an interesting scent, but even dried it was more fragile than wood or stone or metal, and too much rough handling would see it destroyed. The memory it contained was too valuable for that. The biologist breathed in the coin without touching it, and his eyebrows rose in surprise. Rosemary blushed at the sight, resisted the urge to excuse herself. A master craftsman might have a signature for his coins to signify their added value, but while Rosemary was more than competent, that would have been claiming more than her skill entitled her to. It's very old, said the biologist, examining the kelp. But newly imprinted. I made the blank when I was young, said Rosemary. I kept it to remind myself what not to do. I didn't think I'd ever use it. But what you want. That memory was also from my childhood. They seemed to fit together. Two little fragments. You don't feel young anymore, said the biologist. I don't blame you. Neither do I. I have some excuse, said Rosemary. But you can't be that much older than my daughter. It's not the age that weighs me down, said the biologist. He unloosed a long cord of leather from around his forearm, uncovering a small flat disc pressed against the soft inner flesh of his wrist. A family tradition, you might call it. I got it from my father, and he from his. I keep it on me always. You might be interested in trying it while I check yours over. Pale and yellow, the coin was made of old bone, smooth and oiled by close and constant contact with human skin. It smelled of incense, funereal, as if the bone had been smoked, and the scent was stronger than she expected. Looking closely, Rosemary could see tiny grains on the surface, and realized the biologist continued to polish the bone with the incense, reinfusing the scent and strengthening the association with the memory. The coin contained an empty ocean, a lifetime of search. The last of the dusky dolphins, once so prominent about the Hikarangi Trench, had died when Rosemary was a child, in a marine park far from open water. From the memory, Rosemary could see her own hands, much larger than normal, with square knuckles and a dusting of thin hair across the back. They looked very much like the hands of the biologist, but older and hardened with wind and salt, and they crossed and recrossed the ocean, looking for any trace of survivors before the bitter, baleful acceptance of their extinction. Rosemary shivered, taking her fingers off the coin. No wonder the young man was so unhappy. To feel this grief, this anger, and not even his own, but his grandfather's, as a constant presence would be enough to sour anyone, let alone someone who worked in a room of old ghosts, walls lined with skulls and stuffings and the detritus of the dead. Why do you do it? she asked him. Certainly, while some people would rid themselves of their grief, even if only to bury the coin in the back garden, many more held on to it as part of the human condition. Rosemary did so herself. One could not experience pleasure without pain to contrast it with, 
and sometimes the cost of excision was greater than the suffering by keeping the experience in the first place. Even so, accepting pain was different from deliberately keeping it alive, different from passing it down through generations to spoil the lives of descendants. To remind me of what I am, said the biologist, and what I am as a collector, just like you. But unlike you, I collect specific memories for a specific purpose. He smiled, a little wistfully, and the expression did not seem to fit his face. You were happy, he said, caressing the kelp that she had given him. You were excited. Not many got to see the last one, to swim with it. But I suppose wealth buys many privileges. The water was too cold for you. You squealed when you got splashed. And your mother had to convince you to go in, had to remind you that it wasn't a shark. You'd sneaked a shark coin from the library some weeks beforehand, giving yourself nightmares. And when you were floating in the water, looking down as the dusky swam beneath you, you could almost believe it was a shark. You knew it wasn't, but your legs curled up under you anyway. It swam close enough for you to touch. The biologist's voice wavered. It must have been nice. I expect it was, said Rosemary, neutral. She did not remember it now. The biologist shot her a resentful glance, and his jaw hardened, settled again into the stony expression she had first seen on him. It is sufficient, he said brusquely. I'll take it. I'm surprised, said Rosemary. She was trading for the last coin, her favorite, the ice coin with its cool marble surface and slick scent. It was worth far more than she was paying for it. Animals died every day, but the icebergs did not. The biologist's mouth twisted. As I said, I have very specific tastes. He gestured at the wall behind him, set with shelves, and lined with what Rosemary estimated as nearly a hundred coin cases. All the dusky dolphin memories I've been able to get my hands on. Not many people can make any more now. You're one of the last. I've been tracking them all my life. Like you, I was trained in collecting. It's very impressive, said Rosemary truthfully. What are you going to do when you've got them all? Open a museum? No, said the biologist. I'm going to burn them. All of them. Make a great pile on the beach. Dig a kiln in the sand to melt down the metals. We killed those dolphins, he continued, seeing Rosemary's horrified expression. Every last one. We don't deserve to remember them. Do you think the extra loss will stop it happening again? Said Rosemary, appalled. No, said the biologist grimly. I don't. So you're just doing it to punish, to make people suffer. Even the children. Even the ones who are never responsible, who will never see what you're planning to destroy. Why the hell not, said the biologist. There has to be consequences. For once, it's just going to be us who pays them. He twisted the leather cord, rebound the bone coin to his wrist, flat against the pulse point. Rosemary didn't want to remind him, didn't want to risk his temper before the marble coin had been handed over. Artists in the Waikato, smashing their works with hammers, clay fragments and shredded canvas and marble chips. Didn't want to risk losing the ice that was in so many ways like a dolphin, but she had to know. What you're doing doesn't make sense, she said. The ice coin. Those bergs are gone now, and we are as responsible for the change in climate as we are for the destruction of the dolphins. Yet, you'll give the ice coin to me, ensure its survival. Why can't you do the same for the dolphins? The biologist held up his hand, turned it so she could see the braided wrist. 
I haven't been living with Bergs, he said. I don't love them the same way. It doesn't matter so much to me if people remember them. Besides, he added, what are you going to do with it? Lock it up in your collection with all the rest? It might as well be dead. I won't be keeping it, said Rosemary, stung. Dead indeed. Her library preserved for future generations. It did not bury, did not entomb or destroy. I need it to trade for something else. Something you like better, said the biologist. No, said Rosemary. Not better. Who will it go to, then, said the biologist. Someone who will just look at it, said Rosemary. Someone who won't appreciate it. He sold it once. He'll likely do it again. To another collector, then, said the biologist. Another library like yours, or one like mine. Not like yours, said Rosemary. Not ever like yours. The wharf was empty. Rosemary was hours too late for the ferry, but the biologist hadn't offered her tea, and she would not have accepted if he had. His office felt as empty as his ocean, and the skulls leered at her from the walls, their eye sockets accusing and empty. The heat was giving her a headache. She sat on the edge of the wharf, took off her shoes, and dangled her feet in the water. It was warm as blood, and very green, very clear. Her toes shone pale beneath the surface. She tucked her hands beneath her skirts, knowing that they were her own again, and yet afraid to look lest the knuckles were suddenly larger, the hands suddenly hairier, the reddened, weather-worn fingers closing into empty fists. Rosemary could not fathom it. To destroy all that experience. To do it deliberately, knowing the loss to society, to knowledge. It was beyond her. She found it offensive, viscerally so. His plans for his library made her want to vomit. Surely he could not be serious. She rather suspected that he was. The loss would be so permanent. Trading in memories meant personal loss, the loss of private experience. Yet those memories would still be available to the wider public. They would sift through the population, never really dying, spreading ideas and emotions and empathy. It was as close to immortality as she was likely to get. To toss that away, to deprive others of it, that would be hard to forgive if the biologist was doing it to something he didn't love. But to something he did, even if the memories had driven him to his limits, there was blood on her skirts. Her fingernails had dug into one palm, the other clutching the jacket containing the ice coin. Carefully, she unwrapped it, tipped it into her bloody palm, felt the water chill about her feet, felt the air sharpen, saw the sea darken, and wondered how the blood might change the scent of it, whether it would wash off, whether it would give a faint metallic note to underline the fragility of the moment. It was her favorite coin. Nothing could make me destroy you, she said. I will not be like him, she said. I preserve, she said, and was surprised to hear in her voice a twinge of uncertainty. I do, she said, but in her mind was empty hillsides and empty kitchens and gaps where birds and births and clocks should be. In their absence, other memories had assumed prominence, and she could fill the gaps with new ones of her choosing, recreate herself in the mold she most preferred. She held the bloody hand, the bloody coin, out over the water. If she let it drop, there would be substitutes. She could let it go if she wanted. She could. Chapter 12. Breaking. I'm sorry, but I can't go through with it, said Rosemary. 
Isn't it a bit late for that? said Netro. You've got all the coins. You've traded for all of them. But I have not made the last, said Rosemary. And I'm not going to. I could take an action, said Netro. But both knew it was a hollow threat. Rosemary could certainly be required to pay a sum equivalent to what she had promised, but the type of mental rape that accompanied a forced memory extraction was not one any court or mediation would countenance. She could not be compelled to give up her own memories. Are you worried about what I'll think, he said? About what I'll do with your coin when I have it? Rosemary resisted the urge to roll her eyes. She was the one at fault. She was the one breaking contract. There was no need to compound her error with rudeness. No, she said, in as considered a tone as she could manage. Truthfully, I did not spend a lot of time wondering what you would think of my actions. Not a lot of time. That night she gave away her dragon. She had laid on the heights and cried for fear, hiding her face in the tussocks so he would not see the pity on the face of the porters. Looking away from her knuckles, white about the railing of the boat, as it lunged and thumped through the waves, and her vomit becoming food for the gulls. Declining to help shatter a statue, in case the face looked a little too like her grandmother, her daughter, for comfort. The contempt she felt, contempt for whom? At giving away her daughter's birth to a woman who could not keep her own bargains, her own vows. Rosemary was unaccustomed to worrying about what people thought of her memories. She certainly did not judge others on theirs. In a society that circulated memory as currency, such judgment was considered the height of prudishness. Even as pieces of herself were stripped away, enough independence remained to behave properly. She wondered if the brief flashes of discomfort she had felt at the thought of his scrutiny were simply proxies for what she thought of herself. It was discomforting to think that her judgment had failed her. Surely the person she was now was worth as much as the person she was then. She would not judge another so, who had traded part of themselves for profit. It was absolutely normal behavior. And yet, perhaps it was not his opinion she was worried about. Perhaps it was her own. No worries, then, said Netro. But there's a difference between caring what I think and wanting me to see it in the first place. I think you don't want me pawing through your memories. You certainly don't like me very much. Don't bother to say otherwise. And when you don't like someone... It's a perfectly natural desire not to give them what they want, even if it's a little childish. Juvenile, even. No, said Ruth. I'm not interested, and I don't care. You don't care about anything of mine. Why should I spend any more time in this horrible, dusty library for you? It never ended. Rosemary had sat through dance recitals when Ruth was five, pink and pretty in a tutu. She had sat through swimming lessons at seven, and gymnastics at ten, and gone to endless, interminable performances of drama club through her daughter's teenage years. She had shopped for uniforms, and cut oranges, and sewed costumes, run lines, and checked homework, and organized horse floats, and ribbons, and polish. And she had done it all with the best grace that she could manage. She had had enough. You are 23 years old, she said to Ruth. You do not need me sitting on the sidelines at every damned gymkhana or jump meet or whatever it is they call it. I have done my dash. You'd come if you wanted to, said Ruth. I don't want to, said Rosemary definitively. You'd come if you loved me, said Ruth, and Rosemary was silent. Fine, then, 
said her daughter. Fine. See if I care. She flounced out of the library, leaving Rosemary to irritation and doubt and blessed silence. And the fantasy of stuffing her daughter's face into the fish pond, sending her off to be with her own kind. Remembering again the swimming lessons, where Ruth had learned to hold her breath and hug the bottom of the pool like a pike, bottom-dwelling and snapping from beneath, doing her level best to hurt and hamstring. Fine, she said under her breath. No, said Rosemary, I don't like you. It's true. And if I were a lesser person, perhaps that would influence me to break our bargain. But I have traded with worse than you. A potter at his wheel, turning and shaping, gouging pieces out of clay and tinting it blood red and burning. A woman writhing on her bed, given over to madness and despair and dragging her husband down with her. A biologist by the ocean, forging his anger into fires and making the world less than it had been in blind revenge for a wrong past writing. With worse than you, Rosemary repeated, and I have not flinched from it. So please, do not flatter yourself. Don't even try. This has, in the end, nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with you, said Netro. Your daughter, flesh of your flesh, bone of your bone. She will not forgive you for this. She will not said Rosemary, knowing it to be true. But she is a grown woman, and that will be her choice. Do not think that she will relent, said Netro. In her place, I would not. I do not. Desire is a needy thing, and it rules us all. Look at you. Look at you. You have the ice coin in your hand, and you gave it up once before, and now you keep it. Not because it's worth more, and not because it will fuck over that brat of yours, but because you want to. I do want to, said Rosemary, but there is more to life than want. It's not the important thing in the end. Then what is, said Netro, sneering. No, don't tell me. Happiness? Discovery? Love? Because if you do this, you'll be throwing all that away. You told me when last we met that I was childish. Juvenile. And now you're going to wallow in sentimentality. Dress it up as a virtue? Of course not said Rosemary, strongly tempted to tell him he was being as silly as ever. Those things are important, true, and they're nice to have, but they are in themselves part of your precious desire, the desire to be happy, to know fulfillment. So what if they are, said Netro? Desire is the driving force in our society. If anyone should realize this, it's you. It's because it's me that I know differently, said Rosemary. You ask me what is more important than desire? I tell you, it is duty. I so want to be a good mother to you, said Rosemary to her daughter. The little girl was asleep in her arms and snuffling, and Rosemary breathed in the new baby scent of her, traced the small mouth, the creases in the small ears, and the tiny, perfect eyebrows. You'll have to be patient with me, she said. I'm getting used to this. I got all the coins, all the taking care of baby coins. They were supposed to be a help, and they had been to an extent. Rosemary was well-versed in babysitting techniques, but it was different with her own child. Surely the coin babies had never been this small. But Ruth had cried and cried, and nothing Rosemary knew was enough to soothe her. Upset herself, she had taken Ruth into the library, reasoning that what calmed her would surely calm her baby. But Ruth was inconsolable. 
Rosemary, in desperation, had pulled at the shelves, knocking coins and cases to the floor, until she found the most soothing coin she owned, a flat blue disc imprinted with floating in a calm sea. She had pressed it to Ruth's skin, and the child had hitched her breath in surprise, had stopped squalling, and drifted in Rosemary's arms as the disc rose and fell on the little chest. All I want to do is look after you, said Rosemary. That's my job. You've got to be fucking kidding me, said Netro. Duty? Are you mad? Have you forgotten why you came to me in the first place? It was out of duty, madam. Duty to your daughter and your legacy both. And now you're going to use that same duty to get out of the obligations you yourself incurred? You see the contradiction, then, said Rosemary. You are not the only one. I see it, too. But I have also come to see that my duty and your desire, they are opposite sides of the same coin, yes? I desire to do my duty, it's true. But you're not doing it, said Netro. Do you not have a duty to your daughter, to improve her prospects, to give her every advantage, to make her happy? I do, said Rosemary. It was true. Ruth would suffer for this decision. She would feel betrayed. She would lose trust in her mother. Rosemary had not always been a perfect parent, but she had always kept her promises. This would be the first time she had broken them, and Ruth, of all people, had kept her part of the bargain, had put away her horses and learned what Rosemary had required her to learn, albeit with sulks and stubbornness and resentment. She had grown, or been forced to grow, and Rosemary was under no illusion that she would not relapse under the disappointment. It's no fun having to practice all the time. I've got better things to do. I don't understand these stupid verbs. Why can't everyone just speak the same language? I'm dropping out now. So what if it makes my grades look bad? It's not like I thought it would be. I don't want to do it anymore. You promised it would get better. And what about your library? There's generations of work there. And let's face it, your daughter shares neither your desire nor your sense of obligation. Don't you have a duty to train her as your replacement, to keep improving what you have? I do, said Rosemary. That was true, too. The library, one of the finest in existence, would also suffer from this decision. Its value would decrease, not distressingly so, as it was already of astronomical worth and the loss of her grandmother's coin, while substantial, was dwarfed by the remaining coins. Still, a loss would be felt— and Rosemary would be the first in a long line of caretakers to preside over a decrease of this magnitude. It was an acceptable loss when balanced against the value of the sapflower coin, but against the triviality of her recent journey, the scales of trade were distinctly unbalanced. She could already hear the voices of her factor, her lawyer, her insurance agent, her grandmother. Are you sure this is the best decision you could make long term? I know this is a little uncomfortable, Rosemary, but have you considered the fact that your daughter might not be the best person to leave the library to? It's not like you to break a contract. You might have left yourself open to a malpractice suit. Shall I look into it for you? Are you sure you know what you're doing, darling? I do, she repeated. And perhaps if I'd done my duty differently, I'd have a better air and a better library. Goodness knows I've desired both long enough. It was certainly in service to both that I undertook this farce in the first place. But perhaps, said Rosemary, perhaps I also have a duty to myself. 
Chapter 13 Burning After the citric tartness of the sorbet, the heat of the day pulsed more oppressively than usual. Rosemary fanned herself with the menu, irritated. Sweat beaded slowly down the column of her throat and settled in the hollows above her collarbones. The back of her linen shift was sticky with damp. This was not the way that she wanted to return home, flustered and overwhelmed by the sun. Her daughter, the pike, was fresh, ready to snap from the cool corridors of the house, while Rosemary swam sluggish with sweat, a tempting target for those bony, resentful jaws. Rosemary had hoped that the lemon sorbet would cool her palate and her temper, sweeten her mood, make her more charitable. Ruth, as expected, had not understood, had bitten back hard with the pleasure of injustice, wallowing in it, scaly belly scratched and scraping on the rocks of indignation. Had no child ever had such an overbearing mother? Ever been so persecuted? She had fulfilled her part of the bargain, after all, and now her mother was Welshing. Ruth's entitlement was greedy and great and unfulfilled. She would not listen. She would not understand. Would not even touch that which Rosemary had at the last refused to give over, even at the cost of her own impoverishment. Rosemary had stared at the sulking, wailing girl and tried to find an ounce of sympathy within herself, tried to think back to when Ruth was an infant in truth and not by choice, cocooned in the warmth of her mother and responding with kicks to her voice. She could not remember the beginning of it. That made her slightly uneasy, the loss of that shared experience. But then was that a reasonable attitude to take? Ruth, for all her blustering, could not remember it either and wouldn't have chosen to if given the choice. The girl had, after all, bartered her earliest memory for that of a classmate, swapping fishes for horses in a deal that set her on the path of her own obsession. Rosemary had left before saying something she would regret, something else. There was only so much impassioned bereavement that one could withstand before wishing another joy of it. In the cafe, cooled, Rosemary wondered if she had taken the wrong tack, she was partly in the wrong, she admitted it. But did that excuse the reaction, the underlying sense of pleasure she got from her daughter at being able to kick and finally having a decent excuse to fully vent her resentment, her hysteria? Halfway home, girded and reasonable once more, Rosemary knew that she had and was and that it did not. The piercing siren shriek, the shocked and sympathetic glances of her neighbors, the gathering crowd, and the half-ashamed, half-defiant look on the face of her daughter as white plumes spiraled from the windows of the library gave Rosemary to understand, in a split moment, that between them they had ruined their relationship beyond repair. "'You stupid, stupid, melodramatic little bitch,' she said to her daughter. "'I should have slapped it out of you years ago, but you'd only have enjoyed it.' "'I wouldn't have been the only one.' said Ruth, sniffling for once the center of attention and perhaps not liking it as much as she had anticipated. No, said Rosemary, you wouldn't. Yet a part of her understood what Ruth had done. Had she herself not taught her daughter to value the library above all things? Ruth had learned well, had valued that same library, even its destruction, over her mother, her family, her duty. It was perhaps the only reason that Rosemary did not smack her heart across the mouth as she pushed past her, ignoring the cries of the crowd, and into her home, though her palms itched. She thought she heard Ruth call after her, but refused to listen. 
Smoke filled the corridors, and the walls were warm to the touch, but Rosemary was more irritated than afraid. This was her library, whether it was whole or in ashes, the extension of herself, the repository of her memories. She could not comprehend that it could be a danger to her. One of the benefits of having the resources Rosemary possessed was that it gave her a thorough hold on her emotions. Having experienced so much, able to pick, choose, and disassociate, she was able to keep control over her feelings when necessary, a form of pre-production editing that kept fear in check. She was also too cross to care, determined to retrieve the coin she had kept, the fresh, clear scent of it, a symbol to Ruth that she was not to be intimidated, was not to be bullied, or to stand in sorrow and repentance, clutching her daughter to her breast. Rosemary liked to think that she had learnt more of duty than that. The cover glowed red with ash, fringed and crumbling to the touch. Rosemary's fingers burned as she scraped the smooth sapflower disc from its mount, the surface heated though not yet to the melting point. Ignoring the pain, the burnt imprint of the coin on her flesh and the floral scent that overrode the sweet smell of scorched flesh, Rosemary caught and kept it, turned to go amidst the heat and chaos, but halted at the door, unable to leave without taking one last look. Sparks dropped off the ceiling beams, guttering in the thick carpet and leaving little round black marks but some fell on the fringes and caught, adding a musty smell of burning hessian to the smell of the room. Most of the shelves were alight, and she knew exactly what was burning and how irreplaceable it was. The door handle was almost too hot to touch, and she had to grip it with the folds of her skirt, but she paused for so long that the skirt scorched and her burnt fingers smoked. It hurt to breathe, but she couldn't stop herself from gasping, trying to get enough oxygen— trying not to cry nor give way to rising, unprofessional, unedited panic. Shit, said Rosemary. Shit, shit, shit. She couldn't do it, couldn't leave. There had to be time for her to save at least some of them. Generations of memories, of collecting, of planning, of improvement. Generations of her family's work. There was no insurance that could cover a loss of this enormity. Even if the monetary value could be replaced, it wouldn't be with memories of the same caliber. Such did not exist outside of other private collections or the world's great public galleries and museums. Rosemary didn't think she could bear a restitution made up of piles of commonality. That bloody child! She had destroyed works that contributed more to the human condition than she ever would. The capacity to understand and preserve simply wasn't in her daughter, any more than it was in Rosemary to abandon what that daughter was trying to live up to, or compete with, or revenge herself upon, or whatever twisted reason she would no doubt use to try and explain herself. Rosemary had no intention of making it easy for her. Let the brat experience some real hardship for a change, and not by proxy. Rosemary had never considered her talents as including the smash-and-grab, but circumstances were extreme, and soon slipcovers littered the floor, pillaged and thrown aside, coins like pieces of eight shoved into corners of her dress, memories glowing through thin fabric and smoking the seams. When no more coins could fit into her pockets, she started stuffing them into her bra. They burned her badly, but the pain was preferable to the loss. The coins she saved were fundamental parts of what Rosemary considered to be the human experience. They were museum pieces of consciousness. She could no more let them burn than the curators of the Louvre could have left a da Vinci. She was the curator. The responsibility was hers. 
especially as it was her daughter who had wrought the destruction, who had lit the match and turned off the sprinklers. Especially so, the charred reminder of Rosemary's twin failures as parent and guardian. Her bodice smoldered, and she had to beat the sleeves to stop them bursting into flame. Her hands peeled skin, the joints blistered and painful, fingers too swollen to bend far. There was no room left in her bra, so Rosemary fumbled at her belt, but while her hands could loosen it, she couldn't grip it enough to pull it tighter, to pull her bodice out looser and secure the belt beneath the billowing folds, make a pocket against her belly. Instead, she used her wrists to pull the belt off, its clasp scalding pale skin. She pulled her dress with one hand, her skin oozing and sticking, succeeded in lifting the front half of the material upward, and clamped her forearm under the fold. With only one hand free, it was harder to wrench open the slip covers and dump their contents against her stomach. Her flesh cringed from the contact, some of the coins half-melted, their edges molding to her, making her bleed and blister. At first, the smoke made her dizzier than the pain, but when her eyes smarted, swelling shut, Rosemary could no longer see the covers scattered around her feet, the furniture overturned and thrown aside to make access easier. When she tripped, hitting her head sharp against the shelves and sent sprawling, the coins no longer collected at her waist but spread, shocked and spilling, over her chest. The softer discs, smoldering, caught, and Rosemary kicked, involuntarily, the kick of a pike's prey and murky pool. But here, the murk was smoke, and the pike long fled into clearer waters, her bony gape empty and vicious. The discs caught and spread, melting into skin and each other, and Rosemary was lost in pain and fire, dizzier than swirling ash and the clogging of her lungs. Unable to move, uncomprehending of anything but her own burning flesh, Rosemary thrashed and cried, tried to scream, but choked instead smothered by hot air, fiery with flecks. She clawed at the floor, at hard-heated beams and overturned desks with black fingers and burning palms, curled in a ball, clutched herself to herself. Her hands clenched tight around small objects, pressed to her breasts the skin so charred she could no longer feel it, was an inkwell, so old-fashioned, a keychain, a memory recorder, a paperweight, a butterfly immobilized in clear glass, a holographic photo frame that flickered half-melted before her eyes, a three-dimensional record of her life that merged with the shock of disconnected memories and sensations of the coins embedded in her flesh. Unconsciously, Rosemary collected until the end, blindly snatching and releasing in an attempt to find something to ease the pain, something to hold on to to make the horror less, to drain it away and leave her cooled and settled back into a body that wasn't a torture to die in. As Rosemary burned within the tinderbox of her library, chimneys of smoke belched sluggishly from the building. Choking the air, already heavy and thick from the unrelieved sun, the endless baking heat of the coastal summer, they towered above the hills, above the island, above the fire service arriving in a clang of burning bells and pumping seawater from the harbor to douse the flames, above the birds that swung and tumbled in the hot current the albatross rising far above the earth and hovering, diving back toward the water when their wings grew too stained with soot, their feathers clogged with particles of past lives, of memories stored and catalogued, kept for rarity and praise. The particles blew and smeared, stuck and clogged together. The ashes and remnants of a thousand lives, of ten thousand the childhood experiences of a young woman mixed with the coin of one born generations after her death, 
The copper tang of the ocean dweller clung to the dried continental clay of a community that had never seen the sea. The subtle scent of charred beach overpowered by the quick, sharp-oiled Monica fire, which burned first and fastest, floating higher and higher above the rest, and then sinking from the thinner air and down back into the swirling, heated atmosphere, spreading and seeding over the land below, forming moisture banks and condensing into clouds. Chapter 14 Birth She awoke to pain and the sound of rain on the roof and little understanding of either. Light refracted through falling water swept the ceiling, splattered above her, a scattered, fragile refulgence that caught her attention and held it, swept her away from her body to float above herself, skimming over the surface of her own consciousness. Her awareness of herself skipped like a stone over water, brief touches where she sank into her own body between hovering in the blistered brilliance of the light that drummed above her. Cool linen surrounded her, anchored her to the bed. It was scentless and slightly rough. The material caught at her chest clung over her heart, while sliding over bare feet and lying smooth under her fingers. Those fingers moved slightly, unconsciously, a blind effort to prove that they could and that her fingertips retained enough sensation to determine the woven texture of the fabric, a sensation that expanded and grew until she was surrounded, and the slight cobbled surface of the linen filled the entire world, surrounded her. Faint breaths of wind swept over her exposed face, and the hand that was closest to the light, the brighter half of the ceiling. It smelled of something she couldn't recognize, a high sweet scent that calmed and flattered, stroked her skin, her forehead, and her cheek. It soothed, but the sensation caught at her dimly. The faint touches seemed to extend too far over the dome of her head, slipped over her gently, smoothly, and she could not understand why the scented coolness didn't catch at her eyes. But it was too hard to think, and so she closed her eyes and let the wind carry her upwards like a leaf, billowing. Strange noises jarred her out of the endless, easy complications of light and dark. They boomed above her, carried by shadows that extended over her and then drew back. Different tones that rolled like the echo of thunder, into strange shapes that she could not recognize but which washed around her like waves on water. Pressure accompanied them, touches on her face and chest, movement and pain, but always the same booming, rolling tones that reverberated in her head a puzzle of sound that shattered into fragments, brief, disconnected syllables that accompanied her but did not resolve themselves. She drifted on their motion. Sometimes, when she woke, there was darkness outside her eyes as well as beneath them, and though the sound of rain continued, comforting and dim, there were no reflected patterns of light above her. She found the loss strange and a little sad, but hard to hold on to. There was still light, a glowing pallor of shape like a succession of pale slices outside her window, out where the rain was. It fascinated her, the smudged shape, and once when the booming came while she looked out, one repeated sound speared her to its shape. The round faces of the attendants shone in the night, mimicked the moon. So was it so surprising that they knew it also? Slowly, her mouth moved, mimicked, found the fascination of discovering new muscles and lips shaped in a moo, the deliberate placement of tongue behind teeth. Moon, she shaped to herself, silently, and the booming resolved like drops around her, 
became more intelligible. The sound was the shape, and she could feel the shape on her lips, round like she could not remember what, and tasteless. When they propped her on pillows, raised her head, she could see a group of objects that were the same shape as the moon, but had a vibrancy she did not recognize. There was nothing in the room that looked the same. When she pointed, they made sounds, and she learned to associate with them, a long lilt and a short plosive that she repeated to herself over and over again, the sounds from her own throat croaking into life and slowly gaining mastery. They had a sweet warm smell, and when they painted her lips with slices, and there was the moon inside them, she was surprised, and not a little delighted, to taste sweetness and how it covered a sharp taste like crisp slippery linen on her tongue. The first time she could turn her head enough to see them take her blood, the shock of the prick and the pretty running liquid, she watched in fascination. Apple, she said, pointing at the blood, but they shook their heads at her. She didn't understand. The colors were the same. Was that not apple? It was a treachery she could not comprehend. They brought something to her with their hands hidden in wool. She had learned wool and how it smelled of sheep and oil, though she did not yet know those things. An object of strange shapes and insufficient material. To her new-peeled eyes it appeared fragmented, different shades and textures merged into each other, patchworked into wholeness. The shape seemed familiar to her, pleasing if too delicate. She couldn't understand it, but felt it needed to be thicker, the curves rounder fatter. The way it dripped at the edges disturbed her. They offered it to her to touch, she who loved to touch all new things, to learn and collect the sensations beneath unbandaged fingers, and add them to her library of knowledge like smooth jewels of light, illuminations that bound the shards of her world together. She did not want to touch this. Its completeness repelled her, did not invite confidence." Sensations made her sufficient, but this curving plate was sufficient in itself. She did not understand it. But her desire not to touch it was not matched by her eyes. They returned to its familiarity, comforted by its shape. When they touched it to her fingers, she wailed, a high shattered sound, and snatched them back. But the pain and horror did not unmake her, and slid from her mind like water off oiled stone. Moments later, she was interested and amused to see the apprehension on their faces. She did not comprehend what it meant, could not translate it to the expression that had been so recently on her own. The fear interested her. It made their faces funny and flickered. Wings fluttered at the window, muffled against glass. Turning her head, she could see the soft flash of feathers, the small brown bird, as it righted itself and minced along the ledge, baffled. The glass was a barrier it could not understand, and still limited to the bed, she could not comprehend it either. If she had thought about what it would feel like, she would have said air. The glass was as clear as air, so why not? And cool, except when it was sunny, though she didn't have much experience of sun. All she could remember was rain, now a gentle trickle that sometimes slowed at night, and left patterns on the windows and walls and ceiling. When sunshine appeared through the clouds, there were also patterns on her skin from the drops on the windows, small clean shadowed tears that were nothing like the virulent striations that so interested her when they cleaned her wounds, replaced the bandages. She would have liked to be as free as the bird had been, to touch the glass and feel it hard against her, to collect glass and add it to herself. 
The word tasted clean in her mouth, and she wanted to know if it felt the same to her fingers. She would have liked to hop also, and the pillow restricted her from truly mimicking the pert movements of the bird's head. She wondered if it would let her touch it, feel bird feathers, smell bird wings. It would be nice if it hopped on her hand. Instead, it minced before her, untouchable, and made her smile at skipping, for they could do that together. One day she surfaced to see a new moon in orbit around her, surrounded with hair as dark as the sky socket of the first and earliest moon. She was permitted to touch, and the smooth shining silk of it slid through her fingers like water, warm and faintly scented. When she put her face in it, rubbed it against her cheeks and lips, the moon began to tremble. Rolling sounds came from its mouth, and she was allowed to touch that as well. One sound was repeated, over and over. She tried to reflect the shape in her own mouth, stared at how the other moved, and tried to replicate it. The beginning was easier than the end, for she already knew how to say moon, and the sounds were similar. But sticky water came from her mouth before she could make the other. Eventually, mother, she repeated, and the moon split, gleamed teeth from the cradle of bone. She was pleased with herself, knew she had made the sound right, knew she had a name for the person before her. Mother, she said again, pointing at the girl and smiling. Mother, mother, mother. When mother's eyes watered and mother ran from the room, she could not understand what she had done wrong. But she could see that mother moved as jerkily as the bird, and that was amusing. When they brought back the curved mongrel surface, their hands were again covered, and they would not look her in the eye. Mother was with them, eyes still leaking, and she would have liked to taste the drops to see if they were different than the drops that fell outside and gave her vision such pleasure. They had let her taste those. They rested the hollow arc on her torso, and she looked at it with interest, not wishing to touch, but pleased to see how the hues and textures ran into each other. Her bandages prevented it from touching her skin, but it was too small to fit around her and perched on her chest. Again, she could perceive a familiarity to its shape, but did not know the source. It was taken away, and her bandages stripped carefully from her. It hurt less now, and the sharpness in her arm made the pain recede further. It made her sad that they never let her trace the tints and ridges of her chest with her fingers, but held them gently away. She wanted to touch, to see how the different parts of the landscape of her torso were matched together. She smelled sweeter than the apple-covered moons, but darker, and her tongue could not reach to taste. When they fitted the shield over her chest, snug to her body, Rosemary knew herself. All the memories of her life assaulted her at once, a terrifying, exhilarating melange that left her as incapable and as lost as she was in their absence. She could not hear herself screaming, was too focused on the one dominating remembrance that fitted her fragments together. The agony of flame and melting metal, charred wood, curling plastic, singed stone— the instinctive clutch of the memory recorder and the rapid draining away of all that made her rosemary, the final hideous knowledge that her entire life had been a slow prelude to that one experience, a dying by inches before she was burned away in the conflagration of her life. There was no way to separate it from the other memories. Only in burning was she rosemary, and even that rosemary had been crippled by her own willing loss. She flung it from her, overpowered her attendants, forced their faces to her sculpted torso, and only stopped when their screaming outdistanced her own. 
Thereafter, they did not bring it back, and she was left with a growing detritus of experience that surrounded her, clogged her room, rocks, paints, leaves, fabrics, paper, glass, instruments, toys, twigs, pictures, leathers, fruits, powder. Mine, she said when they tried to take them away. Mine. And... The new room had wallpaper that smelled of paste when she put her nose to it and snuffled. So different from the clean white walls of the hospital, the dry smell of paint interspersed with the sharp stink of antiseptic, the faint tinge of sweat. The faces that came to her in the new papery room wore the same clothes as those of the last, but these carried clipboards and brightly colored books instead of basins and bandages and needles, and they smelled of perfume. She breathed them in as they sat by her bed, sniffed and sniffed, until they brought her things that smelled of themselves. She had lilac and lavender and geraniums, the bright apple shine of the last glowing in the sun as it came through the window. Less for color, although that was pretty, than for the warm, clean scent of the leaves and sunlight. On the table by her bed was an ugly lump of ambergris, brought to her when it was still wet with seawater and a little crusted with sand. They had tried to take it from her as it dried, the cloying fecal scent making the faces twist and hide behind the orange bottles until it aged into earthiness. She had carved pieces of sandalwood and bowls of nutmeg, cinnamon sticks, black pepper. There was a whole range of bottles, bottles over every surface, hundreds of them, squat and skinny and strangely shaped, and all with glass stoppers, dill and jasmine and bergamot, and she liked to roll the oil between her fingers and breathe in the scent of rose and juniper, of mustard and musk and myrrh. The faces were back, shining and damp above her as the moon after a rainstorm, split through a kaleidoscope into a forest of moons, secure on their stalks, bobbing and weaving about her amidst the wonder of her library of things. Moon, she said, and giggled. Discomfort surrounded her, amusement and fear and pity that sent arrows into her body and found their source in the eyes of those who watched her, and the shafts of horror splinting their two straight backs. But beyond them was a wider world that glowed and dimmed about her, a swirling mass of fragmented expectation and disconnected impressions, and the contrast between the wonder of her new experience and the dismay on the countenances of those above her overcame pain and confusion, and she could no longer contain, no longer retained enough of Rosemary to want to contain, the deep glad laughter that bubbled from the depths of her body and delighted, embraced the endless excitement of her new life. <laughs> There you go. What a story. Fantastic. Octavia, thank you so much. That story was narrated by Ruth Stearns as well. Ruth, brilliant work. Thank you so much. That is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope, you know, like I say, I think it was really sweet. You know, Ariel got in touch with us. And if anybody else wants to do that, you know, it'd be lovely to kind of hear how you got into science fiction. That would be fantastic. Don't forget, please support the Starship Sova. We need some funds to keep this fantastic beast of a ship going. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? 
Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.